Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, we dive into the world of crypto and digital currencies and take a close look at two countries approaching them in very different ways. Initially, people that have Nigerian bank accounts are the ones that can access the e-Naira. Now we see El Salvador standing up and saying, we don't want the dollar anymore. We want to be masters of our own domain. And if the latest Matrix film has left you wondering whether we are really living in a simulation, we talked to a philosopher about the long history of this interesting idea. The advent of computers opened up the idea that perhaps a mind could be run on a computer. I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, The World Explained by Experts. Nigeria is Africa's largest economy and its most populous country. El Salvador is a small republic in Central America. But despite their many differences, they have two economic problems in common with each other. The first is that a large proportion of their populations don't have access to bank accounts. The second, their economies rely really heavily on remittances. That's money sent back by people living abroad. The problem there is that the money transfer companies that facilitate these cash flows are really slow and costly. In 2021, both countries turned to the fast-moving world of digital currencies in an effort to tackle these problems. But they've taken really different routes in doing so. El Salvador made the cryptocurrency Bitcoin legal tender, while Nigeria decided to ban bank trading of cryptocurrencies and launch its own central bank digital currency. I've been talking to two experts about the choices made by Nigeria and El Salvador and why other countries are watching what happens in both places really closely. But first of all, let's make sure we're all on the same page about what these terms mean. A digital currency is a means of payment and money that's purely in electronic form. This is Iwa Salami. She's a reader and associate professor at the University of East London in the UK and an expert in fintech. I asked her to explain some of the different types of digital currencies. So for central bank digital currency, it's uh, one that has been issued by a central bank or monetary authority of a country. Because it's purely in electronic form, we can compare it with cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, which really are a digital representation of a value facilitated by technologies, including cryptography and, of course, the blockchain, which is a system of storing transaction information across a wide network of computers. So when people transact using uh, crypto assets or, or cryptocurrencies, as they were originally called, they're transacting behind code, so we don't necessarily know who is transacting behind these transactions. Okay, so we've got these two things, which are both digital currencies, and they both use the blockchain. But what are the real differences between a central bank digital currency and a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin? The significant difference is that central bank digital currencies are much more account-based type. So we know who are those transacting behind the scenes, and particularly also because central banks actually are the ones that are issuing the central bank digital currencies, there's a, if you like, a protection. It's not accessible to the whole world. So we've got quite restricted access as to who can actually engage or use those digital currencies because they have to be issued by the central bank. Whereas with your standard cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, anybody can connect with the network and access them. So that's a major difference. Another difference is that crypto assets have evolved. They pretty much operate as financial assets. 
people buy, track, want to try to gain profits on, depending on how they're doing. Whereas central bank digital currencies, really currencies that the electronic version of the physical fiat currency that's issued by the central bank. So there isn't any opportunity to gain any profits on it. It's not a financial asset. It's not an investment. So really, it's uh, the, the, the currencies actually track the physical version, if you like, of central bank money. Okay. What about stable coins? Because people might have heard of them. So stable coins actually were introduced to deal with the volatility problems of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, because those currencies have had wild degrees of fluctuations that can be the result of anything going on in the market. So stable coins were really introduced to be able to peg certain types of digital assets with standard fiat currencies. So for example, you would have one stable coin that could be pegged to the dollar. So we have, for example, Tether, which is also known as USDT. So one USDT, for example, is pegged to the dollar. And that sort of helps prevent the volatility. The similarity between a stable coin and a, a central bank digital currency is that it's paired to an actual currency, say the dollar or the pound. Supposedly, So it should be pegged to a dollar or a pound, but there are huge controversies around the fact that it isn't. So we don't have one dollar sat somewhere for one stable coin. And that's the major issue about it. Okay, we've got cryptocurrencies, the most famous of which is, of course, Bitcoin. But there are many others out there, too. There are probably the ones you've heard of, like Ethereum and Dogecoin. But there are, at last count, about 8,000 other cryptocurrencies around. And they can all be traded on cryptocurrency exchanges, where investors try to make money by fluctuations in the price. There's a lot of variation in how these cryptocurrencies work, but most, like Bitcoin, need to be mined. To mine cryptocurrency, you basically just take a computer and set it to work doing some complicated calculations, and this adds new blocks to the currency's blockchain. It can take a whole lot of energy. One of the big allures of cryptocurrencies has been this idea of decentralization, that there's no single administering authority behind them. Although today, some cryptocurrencies are actually a lot more decentralized than others. And this is why the central bank digital currencies EU was talking about differ dramatically. They are, by their very nature, centralized. Exactly. It were told me that these CBDCs, as they're known, are not considered cryptocurrencies. They're actually issued by a country's central bank or monetary authority, which establishes the rules for the currency's use and controls it. To understand how this all actually works, it were told me about what's been happening in Nigeria. So tell us what happened at the beginning of 2021 that kind of kicked off the events that we're going to be talking about. Just before 2021, when it came to the approach to take to regulating cryptocurrencies, you know, countries were a bit unsure as to how to actually treat it. Some countries decided to ban it outrightly. Some countries decided to actually just take the watch and and, uh, wait approach to seeing how things evolved. Nigeria actually didn't particularly know how to approach sort of the regulation. So initially began to advise people that these were risky assets, like most other regulators, just letting people know that if you invest in them, you're liable to suffer loss because they're quite risky assets. But somewhere in 2021, there was an outright (laughs) uh, central bank announcement that actually banks will be 
pretty much banned from actually transacting with cryptocurrency um, exchanges and businesses. Trading in this currency, the Central Bank of Nigeria wants that it has no legal backing, so it is banned in Nigeria. Why did they do that? The primary fear really was the competition between a lot more people and businesses preferring to use cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin rather than using the Naira which is the fiat currency. And so there was that genuine fear that actually if citizens predominantly use Bitcoin, then it might be difficult to actually use things like monetary policy tools to sort of control the amount of money in the economies. This happened in February 2021. What impact did it have? Did people keep using them or was it just impossible? That whole process of banning hasn't particularly deterred people from transacting in cryptocurrency. So people carried on using Bitcoin. I think obviously the technology lends itself for that type of, if you're connected to the Bitcoin blockchain, you can pretty much transact in different ways. If you have a Bitcoin wallet, for example, there are other ways of actually transacting without necessarily actually going through an exchange. So we've got the situation where the Nigerian central bank has banned cryptocurrencies. And then in September, it makes an announcement. The Central Bank of Nigeria stated its plans to launch its central bank digital currency called the e-Naira. Tell us what happened. So in September, it makes an announcement that they are going to be issuing the central bank digital currency, the e-Naira. And people were surprised by that. We didn't see it coming. So we heard of the digital yuan that the People's Bank of China has been working on. China has created its own form of digital currency. Known as the digital yuan, the currency will be owned by the central bank. We know of the digital euro that the um, European Central Bank is working on. We know the digital dollar people are considering. So we know that countries are exploring this and quite publicly. But we didn't actually know that Nigeria was actually considering this. It was just quite surprising to see that it announced it and shortly after announcing it, it launched it in October. And we should say that Nigeria wasn't actually the first country in the world to formally launch a central bank digital currency. The Bahamas actually launched one in 2020. So Nigeria is the second country to have formally launched one. The first country in Africa and largest economy on the continent as well. So what was the government's explanation for why it decided to do this? The first really is to help to achieve financial inclusion. At least these are the benefits that the central banks have outlined because about 38 million people in the country, which roughly is 36% of the adult population, do not have a bank account. So the idea is that by introducing the central bank digital currency, this will provide uh, an opportunity for these people that are currently unbanked or underserved to have access to the e-Naira that is issued by the central bank. The second is the facilitation of remittance, and Nigeria is one of the largest remittance destinations on the African continent. So the Nigerians, particularly on the diaspora, sending money back home, if you like, to Nigeria. And that was valued at $24 billion in 2019. And this is typically done through international money transfer organizations with fees ranging from 1% to 5% of the value of the transaction. So basically the ENIRA is expected to make it easier for Nigerians on the diaspora to remit funds to Nigeria. So that significantly reduces the amount of remittance costs. How does it work? Who can actually currently make transactions in ENIRA? Initially, people that have Nigerian bank accounts are the ones that can for now access the ENIRA wallet 
And these are people that have fulfilled what's known as a bank verification process. It's called the BVN, which is basically an identification, quite stringent identification process that's required for you to be able to have an account in Nigeria. So how it works is people would, first of all, be able to download um, the app and link it with their bank accounts and be able to transfer funds from their bank account to that and you can transfer to somebody else who's got eNaira as well. Yes, that's the whole idea that it's going to be a peer-to-peer sort of transfer mechanism. Obviously, the idea of financial inclusion is that it's trying to reach that 38 million people without bank accounts. So what's the goal f- going forward? So there's a tiered mechanism to roll out, if you like, the usage. So first, for those that have bank accounts, and then secondly, for those that have registered uh, mobile phone SIMs, and then it whittles down to people that have national identity numbers. And then for those that don't, but have phones, they would also be able to access it. But the thing is, the lesser identification that you're able to establish, the lesser the transactions that you can engage with. And the idea around that is to prevent things like money laundering and all other types of financial crimes. But ultimately, even for those that fulfill the highest level of identification uh, through the BVN, there's a limitation as to the total amount of money that they can actually transfer. So the maximum amount of money for those fulfilling the highest verification standard, for example, is 5 million naira, which really is the equivalent of $12,200. Are there any risks that come with the introduction of a digital currency like the e-Naira? So if I start with the financial stability risk or the risk that are associated with existing commercial banks, there's that fear that if we have the e-Naira wallet, people may be tempted to use that wallet as a deposit account. And therefore, rather than using commercial banks, they're actually storing uh, their savings in that account, which then means that the relevance of banks becomes redundant. Obviously, in the way that banks work, they work on the basis really of deposits and using the deposits they have to actually lend out, which then means that the lesser deposits that are kept in banks, the lesser opportunities it is for banks to actually provide services, loan services or credit services to individuals. We've also got the financial integrity risk, and that's the extent to which these in-IRA wallets can be used as a mechanism to finance things like terrorism financing and the like. So there has to be real scrutiny along the lines of us really knowing who is transacting behind the space and really getting very solid identification mechanisms in place. Of course, we're using digital technology here. There are all sorts of risks around sort of cybersecurity. There was some sort of Twitter incident of a scammer advertising themselves as the central bank of Nigeria and saying that the central bank is willing to give X X amount of e-Naira for anybody who is willing to sort of get it. And so the central bank had to come out very immediately to say, please don't do that. Don't click on anything, because if you do so, there might be direct access to your e-wallet. Mm, so quite quickly, scammers have started using it. Are there any other particular risks? There are other types of risks, uh, such as operational risks, as well, ensuring that we have solid IT systems in place that can be updated regularly. So the question is if Nigeria has the infrastructure to ensure that the IT system is robust enough to be able to support this type of system. What are Nigerians thinking about this? I think a lot of Nigerians are quite a good amount are positive, particularly around the international remittance 
perspective and the fact that there's that huge opportunity or potential for international remittance to be cheaper. The only problem, though, is whether or not it would be able to fully achieve financial inclusion in the way that it's been promoted. Mm. Because as it is for now, we know it's just people that have banks and are able to fulfill the BVN that can. And also because things like the requirements for people that have national identity numbers Although they're lesser identification requirements, they're also quite difficult to access. Accessing a passport, a Nigerian passport, is very expensive and quite rigorous in the process. The people in the far-flung parts of the country, in villages that are very poor, does that mean they will never be able to get to that tier where they're able to transact sizably, if you like, in the e-Naira, just because they can't get a national identity number? Some of these people don't have birth certificates. And also, how accessible is the internet to people that are going to use it? How accessible is Wi-Fi? How accessible is electricity as well? Because the country has quite significant problems with electricity issues. How do we really get them on board? Because even though we're saying we're going to have a situation where anybody who has a phone would be able to access it, we've placed quite stringent limitations as to the amount of transactions they can transact with the NIR wallets anyway. So how financially inclusive is that? That's a really important point. Thank you very much for coming on and, and talking to us about that. It was a pleasure doing this. A number of other countries might soon be following in Nigeria's footsteps to launch their own central bank digital currencies. And first among them might well be China. China has stepped up trials of its digital yuan, it is trying to become the first major economy to launch a sovereign digital currency. In early January, China launched a pilot digital yuan on app stores across 10 areas of the country. In December, the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank rolled out its own digital currency, Dcash, which can be used in seven countries, including Dominica and Grenada. With the Bahamas and Nigeria, that takes the total launch to nine. And according to the Atlantic Council, at the end of 2021, there were 14 currencies being piloted, 16 in development and another 40 in research phase. While many countries are making their own centralized digital currencies, some countries are taking a very different route. And one of those is El Salvador. The US dollar has been El Salvador's currency since 2001. But last year, El Salvador also made the cryptocurrency Bitcoin legal tender. To understand why it did this, I reached out to an expert based in Canada. My name is uh, Dr. Erica Pimentel. I'm an assistant professor at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. I'm really interested into how people interact with crypto, how that changes how payments are made, and really the financial order as it is. I asked Erica what prompted the government of El Salvador, which is led by President Nayib Bukele, to adopt Bitcoin as its legal tender. You have to understand where this decision came from, why it all happened. First, there were geopolitical reasons for this, right? We have this young leader of El Salvador who sees an opportunity to stand out as this techno hipster leader and who wants to bring El Salvador into this new fintech era. El Salvador could become the first country in the world to make Bitcoin legal tender. President Nayib Bukele announcing he will propose a bill to the country's Congress this week. We also have to think of, in the context of more broadly, the United States taking a position of no longer being the world police. And this has left a space for these mid-level powers, these smaller countries like El Salvador, to take a larger space in their region. And now we see El Salvador standing up and saying, we don't want the dollar anymore. We want to be masters of our own domain. Also because 
If El Salvador is using the U.S. dollar as their primary currency, they can't print money. They don't have any control over their money supply. So by using Bitcoin and the way that they've organized how Bitcoin will be used in the country, they're taking power back. They are re-centralizing power over their money supply into the government's hands. More practically, though, El Salvador, whose economy relies a lot on remittances from El Salvadorian expats. So using a platform like Bitcoin allowed these remittances to come home more quickly and, and more cheaply. And I think beyond that, you know, 70% of El Salvadorians don't have a bank account. And so this is a way to bring the unbanked online and allow them to participate both in their local economies and eventually their international economies as well. Yeah, what actually happened in September when Bitcoin became legal tender? What actually happened? So the first thing was getting everybody on board. And so the first thing they did was that they created Chibo wallets. So they had a government-run app where they gave every El Salvadorian the equivalent of $30 US of free Bitcoin. And that was done because the government set up a $150 million trust that would fund this. And eventually they also set money aside for setting up Bitcoin ATMs around the country. They even installed some in the United States to facilitate remittances and setting up education programs. But they really repurposed money that was intended for economic development and used it for this new Bitcoin initiative. What happens when a country replaces its legal tender with Bitcoin? If we look at the original law that was proposed in El Salvador, it states that prices may be expressed in Bitcoin, that if you want to pay your taxes, that has to be done in Bitcoin. And it also provided some preferential taxation on transactions in Bitcoin. In other words, they wouldn't be subject to capital gains taxation. But it also stated that every vendor, every economic agent must accept Bitcoin as a means of payment if it's offered to them by a customer. But later in August, the leader of El Salvador tweeted that, actually, I changed my mind. Vendors don't have to accept Bitcoin. And I think that's a reflection of the economy in El Salvador, which is very much a cash-based economy, right? So a lot of these small vendors may not have had the the know-how, the infrastructure in order to accept Bitcoin. So I think we need to understand that the application of where does a legal tender apply is that the government can't compel private organizations or individuals to transact in Bitcoin. Individuals and businesses still can transact in UF dollars if they so choose. Now that coupled with some of the challenges associated with the rollout of the Bitcoin wallets that are promoted by the government in El Salvador mean that the uptake of Bitcoin among El Salvadorians has been rather slow. There were technical problems and protests on Tuesday as the country became the first in the world to accept the cryptocurrency as legal tender. So it's going to be quite some time until we start seeing broader application. People say, no, I'm actually better off. There's a compelling reason why I should change from my usual patterns of using the US dollar to using Bitcoin. And that comes from having confidence in Bitcoin, having confidence in the infrastructure around the technology and really believing for an individual citizen that they're they're better off using that as their means of payment rather than the U.S. dollar. And frankly, so far, the statistics have shown that by and large, El Salvadorians disagree. By and large, 90 percent of El Salvadorians say they prefer the U.S. dollar to Bitcoin. 
And where is this heading now? What else has the government got planned? There's been a lot of talk about the announcement of this new Bitcoin city. El Salvador President Naib Bukele has said that it plans to build world's first Bitcoin city. The construction will be funded initially by Bitcoin-backed bonds. So this would be a city built from scratch whose economy is centered on Bitcoin mining and is powered by a volcano. So it would use the geothermal energy produced by the volcano to power Bitcoin mining, which is extremely, extremely energy intensive. But if you're next to a volcano, well, that's energy that's basically free. And that's one of the major economic costs or challenges with Bitcoin mining is really finding the energy to make that mining possible. So the way the Bitcoin city is going to be established, it's going to cost about a billion dollars in volcano bonds. So they're going to issue a billion dollars of volcano bonds starting in mid 2022. Half of that money is going to be used to buy Bitcoin just as an investment. And the other half is going to be used to start construction on the city. And what's going to be really special about this city is within it, it'll be qualified as a special economic zone. There'll be no income tax, no property tax, no city tax. The only tax there will be will be a value added tax, half of which will go to fund the city and the other half will be used to pay back some of the volcano bonds. What are the wider dangers of a country doing this and going full throttle towards crypto as their main currency? So the, the main worry that I would have would be money laundering that's provided by the pseudo anonymity provided by the blockchain, specifically by Bitcoin. Right? If people want to get involved in the Bitcoin space in El Salvador, what's being done about anti-money laundering? What's being known about the identities of the people that are getting involved in this? There's been huge, huge cases of identity theft in their implementation of this new Bitcoin system in El Salvador. Across the board, people want to sign up for the system. Oh, their ID's already been used because someone else, there were very weak controls over who had access to open an account in this system. So I would worry about the country becoming a haven for money laundering or for illicit activity to pass through the country. I also think another really big danger is that because the El Salvadorian government is the custodian over these Bitcoin funds and the way these wallets have been organized, they are centralizing control over these funds. So that goes against the powers of decentralization that Bitcoin is all about. And what if the government decides to freeze this Bitcoin? What if they decide to put a tax on this Bitcoin? What if they decide to misuse this Bitcoin? So I think a lot of the purported benefits of using a cryptocurrency are decentralization and worldwide access to funds. But I think the way that it was implemented in this particular case undermines many of those advantages. So one of the real reasons why El Salvador chose this route is, is because it wants to get away from having a reliance on the US dollar. And yet it's now reliant on a financial asset that's very volatile. And actually, even in the last couple of months of 2021, Bitcoin actually went down a lot in price. So how does that play into El Salvador's decision? Everyone thought by the end of 2021, Bitcoin would be worth $100,000 US per coin. At the end of the year, it was maybe around 50000 Others are claiming, oh, by the end of 2022, it'll be up to $100,000. But a coin whose value can can grow by 250% in a year, can also lose that much in the same period of time. These are ups and downs, ups and downs. How are individuals going to want to invest their life savings in a currency that they know can lose 50% of its value in a day? If, If this was a move to contribute to economic stability and certainty in the country, I'm not sure this was the way to go about it. The question is, 
will El Salvadorians accept their hard-earned money being invested in a currency that's this volatile? I'm not sure they will, and I think that will affect the long-term adoption of this plan. What's been the global reaction to El Salvador's decision to embrace Bitcoin in this way? Immediately, there was a lot of other like Central American and South American governments, different political figures saying this is great, you want to do this in our country. The reality is you have to have the political will to do it. There has to be the regulatory backing to do it. Panama has sort of alluded to it a little bit, but credible, okay, the wheels are turning, we're going to do this tomorrow. I haven't really seen anything like that. What do you think would need to happen in order for it to be deemed a success for other countries to follow it? First of all, the level of adoption. If we actually see people making payments in crypto to one another um, amongst individuals overtaking the US dollar in cash, that would be a major success. And I think the bond issuance for the Bitcoin city will be a major test, right? If they, they raise their billion and they raise it fairly quickly, then I think um, the rest of the world will say, hmm, maybe this is possible and maybe we could have other similar, smaller initiatives in our countries, especially ones that have the geothermal um, or the, the, the geography to support a, a similar project. Okay, so El Salvador is actually a bit of an outlier, although other countries might be watching to see what happens. But as we've heard, a number of other countries, like Nigeria in particular and, and China, are doing the opposite. They're actually tightening restrictions on cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and launching their own central bank digital currency instead, centralizing power over that. So why are countries taking such radically different approaches to this? I think it's, you have to ask yourself, what does the country see as the problem? And what they see as the problem will determine what their solution is. So for instance, if the issue is facilitating payments at high speeds and at low cost, then a blockchain-based solution works, but we don't need to abandon our national currency because we could put our national currency on the blockchain if we still believe in the value of our currency. But if the problem is access to fast and cheap payments and we don't have confidence in our national currency, or we want to abandon, we, for instance, we're pegged to the US dollar or we are have the US dollar as our legal currency, that's when I think we're going to see a solution like El Salvador where they said, we're also going to adopt uh, Bitcoin because that gives us the blockchain solution and an entirely new legal tender. So I think it really depends on what the country sees as the problem. Thank you so much, Erica, for sharing all that with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. It feels like this is a real area to watch in 2022. And you can read a story Erica wrote on what might happen in crypto land this year on The Conversation. We'll pop a link in the show notes. For our next story, we're moving away from virtual money to something a little more philosophical, but still potentially virtual. And that's the question of whether we're all living in a simulation. Like the Matrix. Yes, exactly. Actually like the Matrix. The latest installment of which, The Matrix Resurrections, was just released. This idea that we might all be living in a simulation is not new. Actually, it's been something occupying the minds of philosophers for millennia. I talked to one to find out more about that history. I'm Dr. Benjamin Curtis, currently a senior lecturer in philosophy at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. I've been in the game for 20 years now, published relatively widely in logic, decision theory, metaphysics, ethics, philosophy of religion, philosophy of mind and other topics. So I, I guess I'm what you would call a, uh, a generalist or perhaps a, a jack of all trades. All right. So Ben, you wrote us a story uh, on the conversation not so long ago that 
basically asked a pretty simple question. Are we living in a simulation, more or less kind of like the Matrix or some other version of it? I guess my short answer really to that is, is no. I don't think we are, in fact, living in a simulation. But I do think that reality as we perceive it is not as it really is. So I do think we're all living in some sense in, a, in an illusory reality, but I don't think that it's a simulation. Good to know you don't think we're living in a simulation, but this idea has been around for a really long time, for millennia before The Matrix came along. Where did it first come from? One of the, the earliest philosophers called Parmenides, who was writing in 500 BC, he wrote this poem called On Nature. And it's got these two parts in it, the way of opinion and the way of truth. And in the way of opinion, he describes how things appear to us to be. But then in the way of truth, he goes on to argue that, in fact, things are nothing like how they appear to be. And in particular, he's got this argument that time doesn't exist. There's no such thing as the past and the future in, in objective realities. Probably the, the most famous one, though, is, uh, is Plato. He made this sharp distinction between appearance and reality. And he's got his famous theory of the forms. So what does Plato's theory of forms refer to here? It's a bit obscure, but the, the basic idea uh, is that the world that we see around us is not genuine. It's not real. It's in some sense got lesser reality than the real reality, which is the realm of the forms. And the realm of the forms, it's some sort of a weird abstract realm. And the, you can think about it like this. The world that we see around us is made up of particular things like human beings, tables, chairs, cats, curries, and so on. But these are all meant to be sort of shadows or images of the genuine reality, which consists of these perfect abstract versions of all these things. So in the realm of the forms, there's not any particular table, but there's rather a single thing, the perfect abstract form of the table. So there's a sense in which the world that we see around us is an imitation of reality, but it's not how reality really is. At least my philosophical first inoculation with something like this idea came from Plato's Allegory of the Cave, right? So can you give us a bit of a refresher and tell us how relevant the Allegory of the Cave might be to the question of whether we're living in a simulation? Um, there what he does, he likens human beings on Earth to being like prisoners who are held captive in a cave, whose heads are kind of in a vice and fixed looking at a wall where there are shadows cast by a fire. And they're looking at the shadows, the prisoners, and they think that these shadows are the genuine reality, the real world. And he thinks of the philosophers as being those who manage to escape from the cave. They get out into the outside the cave where they see the sun. He thinks a lot of people who are not philosophers are blinded by the sun and scared and they run back in, you know. But the philosophers get out there. They see how things really are. I mean, it ties in with the, the forms precisely because it's meant to be an analogy for this theory of the forms. The philosophers are meant to be the ones who, in some sense, grasp the eternal forms. That is how reality really is. Whereas the rest of the, the plebs, as it were, <laughs> are the people who are walking around thinking that tables and chairs and cats and curries are the genuine reality when they're not. This idea has not died. T take me up kind of the next big moment in history, in philosophical history, when... The idea of a simulation kind of popped its head back up. The next sort of central bit, around about 16th century, is when modern science begins to flourish. There's one kind of central figure there, and that's the French philosopher René Descartes. And in his most famous book called The Meditations on First Philosophy, we're talking 1641, this was written, he, he places knowledge at the centre of philosophy and science, and he asks the question, well, how do we know anything at all? He says, isn't it, isn't it possible that everything that you take to be real isn't real at all? 
and then instead all that exists is you or your mind and an evil demon who is deceiving you into thinking that uh, all of this is is real. His point is not really that there is such a demon. His, his point is that we can't know that there isn't one. So we, we haven't got any evidence that completely rules it out, and so he thought we can't truly know that the world is around us because we can't rule out that possibility. Did Descartes go from there? He broke it all down, and then did he build it back up over the course of the, the text? He does, yes. Yeah. So after this first meditation, where he's broken it all down and said he can't, maybe there's this demon deceiving me, he then gets to this idea that there is something that he can know for certain, and that is his own existence. A, a demon couldn't fool you into thinking that you don't exist because, you know, he'd have to make it that you do exist in order to do so. So that's that's where he comes up with his, his famous line, cogito ergo sum, uh, translated, I am thinking, therefore I am. Um, and yes, he thinks that he exists, or he can know that with certainty. It's a demon-proof proposition, as it were. What is the next iteration of this we're living in a simulation idea? People don't talk about evil demons anymore. Instead, they talk about brains in vats. So this gives Descartes' thought experiment a more kind of a, a scientific twist that it's been used sort of at least since the 1950s by many, many, many philosophers. Uh, the idea is the same. Instead of the world around you being real, imagine that instead you are a brain inside a vat of nutrients being fed by electrodes by some sort of nefarious neuroscientist who's making it seem to you that everything is real when it's not. Can you talk about the origins of the idea that we're living in a computer simulation? I think the first thing we need to mention in this regard is a, a kind of a change that occurred in the 1950s in philosophy of mind. And um, I mean, Descartes, he was a dualist, which means he thought that the mind and the brain are two separate things. So that in principle, you know, even if, even if you destroyed the body, the mind could still continue. I guess that, um, Many people with religious belief also think that this is true. But in the 1950s, materialism, or physicalism as it's sometimes called, became the more prevalent view, I think, in, in philosophy at least. And this is the thought the mind and the brain are, are in fact one and the same thing. And you can think about the brain a bit like a computer. It's, it's like the hardware uh, and then there's a sort of a biological program running in the brain, you know, with the neurons firing and, and electrical impulses running through it. And that, in some senses, is supposed to give rise to the mind. So with the advent of computers, this, this opened up the idea that perhaps a mind could be run on a different type of hardware, i.e. on a computer rather than the wet, sloppy stuff inside our skulls. The brain is seen as a, an input-output device, it takes in information from the senses and it uh, spits out behavior and thoughts come along the way. And the thought is, if you can get a computer that's, that's powerful enough, you can replicate the functioning of the brain on a computer and thus produce a sort of thinking, feeling mind, just like the brain does. So I, I want to talk about a little bit about pop culture here because uh, you, you've written about this a little bit and it's really fascinating. Obviously, The Matrix um, was the big one that kind of first burst upon the scene in at least most recent history. How did that change the debate, you know, in the, among the public? What it certainly did was to introduce these ideas to a, to a much wider audience. And importantly, together with that idea that we mentioned previously, the one that it might be possible to run minds on computers. 
that gave rise to a host of philosophical articles that discussed these possibilities. And Nick Bostrom's 2003 article is a kind of notable example in this regard. So it's called, um, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? He thinks that there's a sense in which if we think that humanity will survive long enough to develop uh, computing power that's powerful enough to simulate human minds and the future persons or the future human beings have the desire to do so, then they will. And he thinks that if those two assumptions hold, then we've got, in fact, good reason to believe that we are, in fact, living in a simulation because there'll be far greater number of simulated minds than there are actual human minds. And it's been picked up by many outside of philosophies, loads of YouTube videos discussing it. There was an article in the Scientific American that discussed it. Even Elon Musk, I think, uh, mentioned it in, in one of his speeches. Uh, and Free Guy, this is a cool new movie that came out not so long ago. Um, this kind of works in that realm of a simulation, computers. It puts this character uh, as a non-player character, so one of the background people in a video game. What are the lessons that are pulled out from that story of the main character there? The thought there, I think the main issue is to do with free will. And it's the question of, uh, well, if you're running a mind on a computer, presumably it's just a series, as we kind of put it earlier, of input-output devices, a series of rules. And it raises the question of whether you can really choose to do anything or whether you are determined by your inner programming or something along those lines. So a lot of people get worried about this kind of idea. If the brain is just like a computer, then it's the same. So even if we're not in a simulation, well, how far have we got free will anyway? If what's going on in our brain is effectively the same as what goes on inside a computer, all the things that I think that I freely choose to do seem to be a result of my inner programming. And as such, I don't really have any free choice over it. Fundamentally to me or you or anyone listening, does it matter whether we what we think of free will is deterministic or not or any of this? Or do we just go about our lives and have fun and shoot some billiards and go for a walk? Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, people who want to make that move. They, they want to say, look, even if we are brains in vats or being deceived by an evil demon, well, should that make any difference to your practical everyday life, how you live it and so on? No, I, th I think the answer is no. Ben, uh, thank you for an incredibly fun, if uh, twisty, conversation here. No problem at all. Thank you as well. You can read a story Ben Curtis wrote about this philosophical history on theconversation.com. We'll give you a link in the show notes. Elsewhere on The Conversation this week, we've been covering the worldwide spike in cases of the Omicron COVID-19 variant. Here's Rob Reddick with some of his highlights. Hello, this is Rob Reddick health editor covering COVID-19 for The Conversation in London. Throughout the pandemic, the coronavirus has evolved, and when it changes, so too do its effects on us. Thanks to a research project called the Zoe COVID study, in which millions of participants in the US, UK and Sweden log their COVID symptoms via an app, we can see how the disease is changing. The leader of the study, Tim Spector, who is based at King's College London, tells us that increasingly COVID is presenting like a common cold. Symptoms such as a runny nose and sore throat have become commonplace, while loss of smell and fever are no longer the frequent symptoms that they once were. But why does Omicron appear to be causing less severe disease? We don't yet know for sure, but there are several factors that could be at play. This is what Paul Hunter, a professor of medicine at the University of East Anglia, explores in another recent article. Different parts of the immune system target different parts of the virus. With Omicron, 
the areas targeted by antibodies are heavily mutated, which explains why they are less effective against this form of the virus. But parts of the virus that attract the attention of T-cells, which are another part of our immune protection, are largely unchanged. This suggests that T-cell immunity built up from earlier infections or vaccinations still works strongly against Omicron. There are other factors too. Omicron has several mutations near to a part of its structure called the furin cleavage site, which is thought to influence the severity of disease. Omicron also appears to be less effective at infecting cells in the lungs compared to earlier variants. We shouldn't get ahead of ourselves, but these could be the sort of changes that help push the coronavirus towards becoming endemic, like the common cold. Rob Reddick in London in England. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode, and thanks to the conversation editors, Leanne Goodman, Stephen Vass, Stephen Kahn, and Alice Mason for our social media permission. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us, podcast at theconversation.com. And you can, of course, sign up for our free newsletter. Just click the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. And if you listen to us on Spotify, they've just added an ability to rate podcasts on their app too, so do give it a try. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about us as well. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Dan Marino. Thank you so much for listening. 